There, now we're going. Would you open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3? As you're finding your place, let me just give you a macro context of today's scripture reading. Uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt for over four centuries, and then God sent Moses, and through many miraculous signs culminating in the Passover, where the firstborn in every home was killed, except for those who took the blood of a lamb and put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts and lintels, the angel of death passed over them, and then Pharaoh let God's people go, and they departed from Egypt, taking with them much spoil, lots of gold and jewelry and goods, fabrics, and they went to the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh chased them to the Red Sea because he had changed his mind. And God parted the waters of the Red Sea, and they went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army followed after them, and the waters crashed down on the Egyptian army. After that, Israel made their way to Mount Sinai, where they entered into covenant with God. God gave them the law, the covenant, instructions for the tabernacle, and then they were on their way to the promised land, but they did not believe that God would give it to them, and so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That's where we pick up in today's scripture reading in Joshua chapter 3, 40 years after having been delivered uh, out of slavery in Egypt, the first generation having died, their children now having grown up. With Joshua 3 open, would you please stand? This is the Word of God, Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. And they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, 
And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we read this history, uh, we are reminded of the great wonders that you have done. You split the Red Sea. You led your people to Sinai where you entered into covenant with them. Then you led them to the promised land and parted the, the waters of the Jordan River. And all Israel passed through on dry ground and were baptized into the promised land. As we consider baptism today, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand the way in which you have established baptism from ancient times with Noah and Moses and Joshua, and how all of that has come to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was baptized in the Jordan River, who was baptized by crucifixion. Now, Lord, we want to be a people who are baptized in Christ Lord, please teach us by your Spirit a biblical theology of baptism that we may be a baptized people in the fullest sense of the word. I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that your Spirit would help me, that he would fill me and use me. I pray that your Spirit would speak directly to each person here, that we may See and understand your word, learn and draw near to you. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Today's preaching text is a, a challenging one. We're not actually going to go line by line through it. It's more the episode itself that we want to consider within a, a much broader view of what baptism is. Uh, now, if I was to ask you, what does Joshua 3 remind you of? What other chapter in the Bible? You don't, may don't, don't need to know the chapter, uh, but what other episode does it remind you of? It's very clear in the text. Right, passing through the Red Sea. So, so when God delivered the people out of slavery, he split the waters of the Red Sea. They went through. Forty years later, he splits the waters of the Jordan River and they go through. And, and if you're reading through the Bible, the one thing that you must not miss is that these two episodes go together. So going through the Red Sea, that's Exodus 14. Going through the Jordan River, that's Joshua chapter 3. Now, what I want you to do for a moment in your mind is do this. If, if you could take the narrative of the Old Testament, the, the history of the Old Testament, and just sort of lay it all out in a straight line. And, and let's say passing through the Red Sea is here, and passing through the Jordan River is here on that line. Just grab those two episodes in your mind and then bring them together. And when you do that, if this is a line, then everything that happens between Exodus 14 and Joshua 3 sort of folds into a circle behind it. And, and what I want you to see, and this is really important for our first movement in today's sermon, is to see how you could 
and I believe that God is inviting us to do this, just subtract everything from Exodus 15 to Joshua 2. And what I want you to picture is that when God split the waters in the Red Sea and God split the Jordan River, picture them as one event. That as, as God, okay, so you have people in slavery, and God delivers them out of slavery, and then he splits the waters of the Red Sea. And they were slaves. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And now subtract everything from Exodus 15 to Joshua 2. And now they're walking through the Jordan River. And they come out on the other side of the Jordan River, and where are they? They're in the Promised Land. That is crucial to today's text. The first act of understanding the text is to see in very big, very zoomed out lens, very big picture, what God has done. He has taken a people from slavery and baptized them into the glory of the promised land. Now we know there's a whole lot that happened between those two events. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't consider that, but we have to see these two acts of God separating the water as joined into one. Now we know that in between, we have the wilderness wanderings. You have a lot of highs. God reveals himself in those chapters from Exodus 15 to Joshua 2 in ways that, that no one had ever even dreamed of. Uh, he was so close to his people. And his people drew near to God in such an amazing way. Moses himself went up the mountain and beheld not the face of God, but he was so close to the glory of God that when he came down, his, his face was beaming with the glory of God. Not, not as a sun radiates light, but as the moon reflects the light of the sun. So great things happened there, but we also know that there were some terrible tragedies in the wilderness. We see the apostasy of Israel in, in such sharp relief against the glory of God as they worship a, a golden calf of their own making, as they uh, grumble against God, as they want to go back into slavery in Egypt, and so on and so forth. We see the discipline, the severe discipline of God as He actually strikes people to death in the wilderness in His discipline. But we also see that Balaam could not curse God's blessed people. This is remarkable chapters. But the very first thing is you take the Red Sea and the Jordan River and you put them together. And that is so key. So these three narrative movements, though, capture the gospel and the Christian life. There was a time when we were all enslaved to sin. And then we're delivered through the Passover lamb, just as Israel's delivered through Passover. We're delivered through the Passover lamb. We apply the blood of Jesus, the lamb, to our life. And we are delivered from our slavery to sin. And we are en route then to the glory of the eternal promised land. Between us and the promised land, though, we have to be baptized. And this is, again, why at, at South Shore we believe in believer's baptism. We're delivered. We apply the blood of Jesus, we're delivered from our slavery, then we're baptized. Now I want us to do what we did for, for the narrative of Israel before we make it more complicated. One baptism, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. 
For a lot of this morning, I'm going to be talking about two baptisms, but I want you to hear right now, I'm not preaching a double baptism for the Christian life. I'm talking about two parts of one baptism. So let's bring these two baptisms together, the Red Sea and the Jordan River in the Christian life and the gospel. Once you are saved from your slavery to sin, you are to be baptized. You pass through the waters. First baptism takes you out of slavery. You're walking through the Red Sea with Israel. Then picture yourself walking through the Jordan River with Israel, and you come out on the other side, and where are you? You're in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the eternal promised land. You see, the whole narrative of of Israel's history is a picture of the gospel, that we are going from slavery to sin to eternal life in a recreated, resurrected, glorified universe, the new heavens and the new earth. One baptism between your deliverance from sin to your place in resurrected glory in the new heavens and new earth. One baptism. So, on the one hand, the Red Sea and the Jordan River have to be understood together in Christian baptism. They together give us the fullness of of the, the meaning and the significance of Christian baptism. When you are baptized, you are declaring, I was a slave and I will be raised in glory. That's what we declare. And how does that all happen? Well, we're in Christ. His crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. That which happened to Christ will happen to us. On the other hand, so you have to see that big picture first because now we're going to make it more complicated. On the other hand, there's all this material that we also have to walk through in the church to fulfill the gospel according to the scriptures. And that is, after we are redeemed, we are delivered out of our slavery to sin, we apply the blood of Jesus to our life, we are baptized as believers, and we come out, and where are we? We're not in resurrected glory in the promised land yet, are we? So where are we? We're in the Christian life. The Christian life equates to, corresponds to Israel's wandering In the wilderness. And that's the Christian life. Have you ever wondered why life is so hard? Have you ever wondered why you're suffering as you are? It's because though there's one baptism, Red Sea, Jordan River, together, that takes us to resurrected glory, there's all that material in between that we have to walk through. Exodus 15 to Joshua 2. We have to walk through that. And in that time, God will discipline us. Sometimes it will feel severe. But just as Balaam could not curse those whom God had blessed, it's not God's curses that are falling on us. It's his discipline. Life is hard. We are currently then in the wilderness between the two parts of the one baptism. One part is behind us, the Red Sea, for those of us who have been baptized in in the church. And this really emphasizes our salvation in Christ. We, We unite ourselves to the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There is one part of our baptism that in our Christian experience is still ahead of us, and that is our Jordan River experience. And and there are all kinds of um, 
spiritual songs and hymns that talk about crossing the Jordan. And what are those songs about? Death. Because it's when we die that we cross the Jordan. It's, it's that's when we fulfill that part of the story. And even in death, only partially, because we're not raised in glory. We're not in the new heavens and new earth. We are, we are in heaven. We are awaiting our future resurrection from the dead. So the Jordan River, more than representing death, is representing the return of Jesus Christ. And we know that the name of Jesus is Joshua. Yeshua is both Joshua and Jesus. Same name. So we're waiting for Joshua, that is Jesus, to come and to take us into the eternal promised land, to raise us from the dead. This this is just so powerful when you can step back and see the Old Testament as, as just describing for us the gospel. So we have one part of our baptism which is ahead of us, which is the return of Christ. And with the return of Christ comes the judgment. And so only those who have put themselves in Christ over here in the first part of the baptism, saying, I am going to hide myself in Christ. Only we who hide ourselves in Christ, who step into Christ in our reenactment or fulfillment of going through the Red Sea, only we will cross the Jordan River into the new heavens and the new earth with Christ at our head. Do you see how that goes together? And there will be many, and this is, this is the hard part of the message this morning. There will be many who go through the waters of, of baptism, proclaiming something about their belief in Christ, who fall in the wilderness. And don't cross into the eternal promised land. We talked about this a little bit last week. Just as there were many Israelites who came through the Red Sea but did not cross the Jordan. And in fact, the, the, the ratio is awful to... Two million uh, Israelites came out of slavery. I I think the better, though, stat is 600,000 men, grown men, came through or came out of slavery in Egypt, and only two of them crossed the Jordan. 600,000 men went through the Red Sea. Two men went across the Jordan River. And, And this is what's so frightening, right, for us in the church. If we are really fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures in Christ, and we know that he fulfills them, and then we in Christ walk in that fulfillment, how many are there in the church who are baptized, who never actually experience the second part of their baptism? Frightening. So there's one part of our baptism in front of us. For the rest of this morning, I want to discuss what happens in between these two halves of baptism. It's a Christian life. What we learn in the scriptures is that the wilderness has a function, and the function is during or between our two baptisms or the two parts of our baptism, we are humbled. Between the Red Sea and the Jordan River, the genuineness of our faith is tested. And it's between these two parts of our baptism that we really see if we are longing to cross into the promised land or do we want to go back to Egypt. Because this was a great problem for Israel. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. Some of them wanted to press on to the promised land. Which are we? We Do we want to go back to Egypt or do we want to go to the promised land? Remember, Egypt represents a life of slavery to sin. 
The promised land represents resurrected glory in the new heavens and new earth. Which one do you want? Because the wilderness, which is now for us, is where we decide, will we be humbled? Will our, te- our faith, when tested, be found true and genuine? Do we look forward to our resurrected glory in the promised land, or do we just want to go back to the pleasures of sin? Those are the challenges for the Christian life. In order to show you where I'm getting all of this, just flip backwards to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read for you verses 1 to 10. And what you're going to hear is Moses speaking to the wilderness generation. So all of the Exodus generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, had died. And now their children have grown up. It's 40 years after the Exodus. And Moses is going to speak to them, and he's reflecting back on what God did for them between the two parts of their deliverance, two parts of their baptism, between the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And so though Moses is speaking to Israel, I want him to hear, I want us to hear him speaking to us. So Moses, wilderness generation, are poised on the edge of the promised land, ready to cross into the Jordan. This is just weeks before Joshua 3, maybe days. Chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today... What he's referring to there is he has just re-read to them the law, the covenant that God gave to them 40 years earlier on Mount Sinai. So everything that I've read you about the covenant that God has given to us, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, what was God doing for those 40 years in the wilderness? That he might humble you. Christian life is to humble us. At the end of your walk with Christ, I hope you're a more humble person than you were when you were baptized as a new believer. Christian life is a humbling experience. Testing you to know what was in your heart. That's the second thing. Or sorry, that's, uh, yeah, the second thing whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So connect, Moses connects here as a, as a symbol of this process of being humbled, that you are hungry. What does that have to do with being humbled? When you are hungry, when you realize that you can't feed yourself, that you rely on someone to provide food for you, that's very humbling. Here's God Almighty. Can you picture God being hungry? God's never hungry. We are so needy that unless there's food given to us, and who ultimately gives us food? It's God, and God gave them food, that we'll die. That's humbling. So it's just a It's not the fullness of how they were humbled, but it's just an image to remind them. But then he says, and what I showed you was what you need more than food. So food addresses the physical humiliation. You need every word that comes from the mouth of God. Spiritually, we are famished unless God feeds us by his word. 
So physical humiliation, spiritual humiliation, both, we are entirely dependent on God. Who's great among us that can feed himself or who can uh, feed himself physically or spiritually? For both physical and spiritual food, we depend on God. That's humbling. Verse 4. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. I looked after you, says God. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of waters and fountains and springs and flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Has anyone here ever watched Survivor? So after, I don't know, like it's day 27 sometimes, and then there's a reward challenge in Survivor, and they haven't really been eating that well. They, they eat rice or beans or something. Somebody might be able to go fishing and catch them a fish, and that person usually stays on the tribe a little bit longer than everybody else. But then, then Jeff, who's the host of the show, brings out this beautiful banquet, you know, cheeseburgers and French fries and Coke. It's not even that good, right? Like it, it's, it's junk food. But these people are so hungry, and, and they can't even contain themselves. Like, they're all jittery, and they're, they're slobbering, and there's this contest to see who will get to eat this junk food. And, and some of them start to cry, and then, and then he lifts up another handkerchief, and there's, there's chocolate. And then a couple of the ladies fall down on the ground because they just need the chocolate. And that's 27 days, and they just want that food. Now imagine you're 40 years in the wilderness and you're eating manna, and it's dry and dusty. You know, all of a sudden, Moses paints this picture of a good land of milk and honey and bread and water and lush vegetation. It just makes you want to salivate and want it. Now, I want you to equate those two th things. They're both object lessons for us. So you have the very sort of shallow survivor, I want that cheeseburger and chocolate, then you have, after 27 days, then you have Israel who, who wants to get into the promised land because finally all of their desires will be met. Now take that exponentially higher. How hungry and thirsty are you to be raised from the dead? To be on the other side of physical groaning, relational strife, weakness, fatigue, aging, disease. How hungry and thirsty are we to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory? How much do we desire to be taken to the throne of God and behold the face of God? What Moses is saying to the people is persevere a little bit longer. Same with us, persevere. We are in the wilderness. It's hard. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're tired. We're cranky. Persevere just a little bit longer. You see, what baptism reminds us is that we are united with Israel. 
I thought I was going to say Christ. What's well, true? We are united with Israel. We are walking the same journey that Israel walked. In one lifetime, you will live out the full history of Israel. That's what baptism reminds us of. And so all of the lessons that Israel learned in the wilderness, they are for us to learn. And when you are being baptized, you have to remember two things about this baptism. One, you, you transition from slavery to resurrected glory in the eternal promised land. But two, in order to get to the second part of your baptism, I'm sorry, but you've got some wilderness to trek through where you will be humbled You'll be tested. But just long for the promised land and know that it is coming. See, Jesus understood this. When I said that we are united with Israel, we are united with Israel only because we are united to Christ. And Christ united himself to Israel. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit will give you understanding of what I'm about to say because it is so wonderful. And it will revolutionize your way of reading the Bible and understanding the gospel. There's a, a, such a different way of understanding the cross and, and the mission and the work of Christ. There's so many different ways that God gives us to understand it. Fulfilling the narrative of Israel is one beautiful way, a, a full and robust way of understanding the gospel and what Jesus has done. And so what happens is uh, Israel really can't, enter into the eternal promised land because they're not righteous enough. You can't cross, they could cross the Jordan River into the promised land, which is just a picture of the eternal promised land. But there is no Israelite, not Joshua, not Caleb, who could cross the eternal Jordan into the new heavens and the new earth in their own righteousness. Which is really devastating because what that means is that in reality, though two men made it through the object lesson, if you can understand what I'm saying, Joshua and Caleb made it through the object lesson of getting to the picture of the eternal promised land, which is Canaan, no one, zero, of every person who has ever lived can actually cross the Jordan. That's what Jesus came to do for us. He comes down, he says, okay, look, Israel gave us the blueprints, the picture of all of this, but they couldn't get the job done. So I'm going to come, and I'm going to start back here, and I'm going to walk through it all, and I'm going to do it perfectly. And so Jesus, he was never enslaved to sin, but he unites himself to the slavery of Israel, which is why when he goes to be baptized, John says, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus say? No, it has to be this way. Why? In order to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, uh, Israel failed. I need to go back and redo everything without failing. I need to do it with perfect righteousness. So what, what I'm going to show you is... We go from slavery to sin to eternal promised land because we put ourselves in Christ. And Christ is going to walk through all of this, and then we rest in him. So Jesus, though he was never enslaved to sin, he enslaved himself to sin. That's what he did on the cross. He enslaved himself. He took the sin of the world into himself, and he was crucified. Right? 
That's what the first baptism is all about in the Red Sea, this deliverance from slavery to sin. You really want to associate it with crucifixion of Jesus. And so when Jesus goes to John in the Jordan River and he says, uh, I need to be baptized, I need to show what I'm about to do, and he, he's baptized, and then where does Jesus go right after his baptism by John? Yeah, into the wilderness. And how many days is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. How many years was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Why does Jesus go? And we're told that the Holy Spirit compelled him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit who had descended on him takes him into the wilderness in order to fulfill all righteousness. Israel failed in the wilderness. We fail in the wilderness. Problem is, if you fail in the wilderness, you're not crossing the Jordan. So, so then... One way to preach this is to say, now that we're in the wilderness, don't fail. Don't fail as Israel failed. That misses the point. We're going to fail, okay? We are going to fail. We cannot, in our own strength, cross the Jordan, even though we've been baptized uh, the first part of it. But we cross the Jordan because Jesus stepped into the wilderness and he did not fail. That's what the temptations of Satan are all about. Let me show you this. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Remember, what are the three things that God was doing to Israel in the wilderness? He was humbling them, he was testing them, and he was trying to prepare them for the promised land. He's saying, look forward, not backward. Desire the promised land, not slavery in Egypt. We're going to see all three. That's what these three temptations are all about. Having been baptized by John then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was humbled, the genuineness of his faith was tested, and he proved that he was looking forward to the promised land, the eternal promised land, and not backward. Let's take a look at them in in order. First, he was humbled. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Pause there. Now, I don't know that we often think about this enough. Now, on the one hand, of course he's hungry. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. We we affirm that Jesus is fully human. He is as hungry as you would have been if you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's that hungry. So this is a bit of an understatement. But I want you to see what's happening. We also know that Jesus is who? This is God. Second person of the Trinity. The Word made flesh. The Son of God. God, now you have to work with me with the wording, okay? I'm going to speak to you with the limitation of human language. Work with me. Don't work against me. God was humbled in the hunger of Christ. Just, can you fathom, I said it earlier, God doesn't get hungry. Because he has no external needs. God doesn't need anyone. God doesn't need anything. He is totally independent, totally self-sustaining. Now, now God, in in the person of his Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, becomes a man. And he goes and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, this is the eternal God who is 
self-sustaining, independent, needs no one and nothing. He's hungry. He's been humbled in his humanity. Now, when we think of humbled, we think of, of taking this arrogant person and humbling them into some sort of humiliation. The word humiliation has a very negative connotation. Humiliation actually only means to be humbled. But you, we know that, right? So it sounds wrong to say that God was humbled because God's not arrogant. Jesus wasn't arrogant. I'm not saying that the arrogant God was humiliated in a negative sense, but his humiliation, and, and theologians for 2,000 years have been talking about the humiliation of the incarnation and of the passion. He was humbled in his humanity. So what is he going to do? What did, what did Israel do when they were hungry? They groaned. They complained. They, they thought only about their physical hunger and forgot that they were even more dependent on God for his word. Take a look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You don't need to be hungry. You're God. So make some food for yourself. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus is basically saying is, look, I am fulfilling all righteousness. I am going to succeed where Israel failed. I am physically hungry right now. But it's not physical food that sustains me. It's the word of God that sustains me. And I rely on the Word of God, and I am fulfilling the Word of God. This is right out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. This is what we read. So Jesus is thinking back to the wilderness wanderings, and he's saying, I'm going to succeed in the wilderness where Israel failed. He was humbled, and he succeeded. He just relied on his Father. He says, God's not going to let me die physically, and God is going to sustain me spiritually. I rely on him. I feed off him and his word. Second thing that we learn in the wilderness is that the genuineness of our faith is tested. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you, you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When our faith is tested and we fail, we end up testing God to prove himself. You know, when, when we are weak in our faith, when we're not sure if our faith is genuine, when Israel's faith was not genuine, they then tested God and said, if you are God, then prove it. It, it goes together. Our failure, when our faith is tested, always leads to us testing God. And Jesus says, I'm going to have none of it. I know who I am. I know who God is. And I'm going to trust Him. I don't need to prove it to you. I don't need to prove it to anyone else. God is God, and I am His Son. So I'm not going to test Him. My faith is secure. Jesus was quoting right out of Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, he's thinking about the wilderness. The third thing uh, 
was that when Israel was in the wilderness, they were to look to the eternal promised land, not back to slavery in Egypt. This is the third temptation, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is quoting there Deuteronomy 6, 13. This is kind of tricky. How is this Jesus looking forward to the eternal promised land? Well, if Jesus wanted all the kingdoms of the world, that's why he came. It's just that he didn't want to receive them from Satan because if he takes them from Satan, he receives the temporal reign over the world. But what he is thinking of, I have a mission from God and I need to see it through. I need to cross the Jordan River. In order to cross the Jordan River, I can't take from Satan the kingdoms of the world. I don't want to be just like Pharaoh. I'm going to take all the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to receive all the kingdoms of the world by being faithful to God. And she says, no. My view is not on a temporal reign on this earth. My view is to reign over here in the new heavens and new earth as the king of all the nations forever and ever. So no, Satan, you have nothing that you can offer me. I will worship God and God will give me the kingdoms of the world forever and ever. Right after this, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus succeeded. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness where Israel had failed, where we fail. Now, having demonstrated his perfection, that's what he has done, Jesus knew that there was another baptism to come. He was in the wilderness. He still had to cross over the Jordan. He needed, and, and the Jordan is what? When Jesus returns, and Jesus brings with him what? Judgment. Jesus needed to face the judgment. Now, that's easy for Jesus. Jesus could just say, Father, I've lived a perfect life. Judge me. Have I not, from, from the very beginning, lived a perfect life? Yes. Welcome me into your eternal kingdom. That could have happened. Here's the thing. Jesus takes the judgment that we deserve onto himself so that we can cross the Jordan with him. He is judged for the sin of the world, not for his own righteousness. Why does he do that? So that we can cross the Jordan. So that we can join him in the new heavens and the new earth. In Luke, just listen to this, in Luke 12, Jesus says this, I have come to cast a fire on the earth. That's just an image for judgment. I've come to judge. And would that it were already kindled. Verse 50, Luke 12, 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my di distress until it is accomplished. Now, he said that, and he uses the word baptism, even though he had already been baptized by John. Because Jesus understands the two parts of the baptism, deliverance from slavery and crossing the Jordan into the eternal promised land. Salvation and judgment. Salvation and judgment. He takes in himself the judgment that we deserve. And it is by this baptism of Jesus, where he takes the judgment of the Father that we deserve into himself, that we gain entrance into the eternal promised land. And we cross the Jordan River in Christ. Not because we were faithful in the wilderness, but because he was. Not because we can withstand the judgment of God, but because he withstood it for us.
So the first part of our baptism, when we're uniting with Israel in the Red Sea, marks our union with Israel in the wilderness. Like Israel, we will be humbled. Let me just close with this. Let me just take everything that we've learned about the theology of baptism and apply it to our lives. How are we going to be humbled? Well, there's physical humiliation and there's spiritual humiliation. Physically, we will see over the course of our life that we are physically needy. We are physically frail. We will grow older. For some of our, our younger folk, that might seem hard to believe. But we, we do grow older. Our body begins to break down. We become weak and tired. And we will all die. Physically, we have a great need. So we are humbled. As we grow older, we are humbled more and more. The strength of yesterday becomes further and further distant from the reality that we're living today. And as we grow weaker and weaker in our bodies, the sweeter and sweeter the promise of resurrection into physical glory becomes. As we become more humble, the hope of glory becomes greater. Spiritually, we are humbled. As we mature in the faith, we see more and more how needy we are spiritually. We become increasingly frustrated with how slow our progressive sanctification is. Why am I still wrestling with these sinful tendencies? Why am I still struggling against the weaknesses of my flesh? That's humbling. And, and as we grow further in our walk, we realize that we need to share more vulnerably, these spiritual failures with the people right around us. Not with everybody, but we need to bring some people into the reality that I'm not as good as I let on to be. I'm weak. I'm needy. And I, need to, I need to just share this confession with you about who I really am. See, as we, as we are humbled in the faith, we can sort of release the grip on having to be this perfect person who's got it all together as we're humbled. Temptations continue to rock our world. As we humble ourselves, we say, you know, I need to bring these temptations out into the light. I need to find one or two or three people. I can say, look, this is a temptation that keeps knocking on my door. That's an act of humility. And then sin and failure, having to call up that person is close to you and say, I've done it again. I fell into sin again. That's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's humiliating. And in those moments, you have to realize that the power that sin has is in the darkness. And the humble person invites others into that awful, embarrassing, humble place. And that's when we begin to get a grip on the righteousness that is ours by faith. So, in the Christian life, don't be surprised that you're humbled physically and spiritually. You're in your third decade of being a Christian, and only now you're beginning to share the true self with those whom you love. That's good. That's the point of the wilderness. Like Israel, secondly, the genuineness of our faith will be tested. That's why life is hard. God brings tragic circumstances into our life.
to test us. He, he calls us through periods of sickness, illness for ourselves and the ones that we love to test us. Will, will we believe? Will we have faith? Will we persevere? Persecution will come. Ridicule. Financial sacrifice because of persecution. Maybe physical uh, abuse at the hands of those who don't believe. Maybe martyrdom. You know, that's when your faith is tested. When you're being persecuted, do you still believe what you believe? There will be relational discord. Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. What he's talking about is not an actual sword of violence, but relational discord between parents and children and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and cousins and friends. Relational discord because the gospel... Will you stand with Christ? These are, these are real, difficult, challenging trials of faith. But how blessed it is when we come through those trials and we see that there's real evidence that we're saved. We, when we see, I am sincerely desiring to be obedient. Uh, I am sincerely desiring to walk with God in spite of all of this. I, I actually am thirsty to know God's Bible, His Word, more. I'm actually hungry to be more righteous. These are different kinds of trials that, that, that bring a fruit to them. And, and, and we see a growth and we say, ah, my faith is being tested and I am seeing that I am genuinely saved. So I have every confidence, not because I have not sinned or fallen or, or failed in the wilderness, but because I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am in Christ. And he will see me safely through the Jordan River. And I will be raised from the dead. And I will live forever with my king in a new heavens and a new earth. Thirdly, like Israel, during this walking through the wilderness... We must remind each other of the promised land, the glory to come. We must never be wanting to go back to Egypt, but always, always commending ourselves forward to that which will be. You know, there's a saying that says, you know, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's ridiculous. It's rubbish. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Only the heavenly minded are worth anything in the wilderness. You have to be heavenly minded to be of any value to the world, to be of any worth. And I'm not talking about your inner value that comes in Christ, but to be useful to the world and to your family and to your church. You've got to be always looking forward to, to the promise of resurrection and eternal glory in physical bodies where you, where you no longer walk by faith, but you walk by sight. And there's Jesus in his resurrected physical glory and there are we with him. So while we are going through the wilderness, it's going to be hard. And God has different challenges for each of us. It's going to be hard. It is hard. Let's commend to one another the promised land. Remember where we're going. Don't look back. Look forward. Keep walking. Live not just by bread, but by every word that comes from God. Endure the trials. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and finisher of your faith. Seek the kingdom to come over the world, just as Jesus did. Seek the kingdom, not the world. See, baptism marks our union with Israel in the Red Sea, the Jordan River, and in the wilderness in between. It's the second part of our baptism that ushers us into the eternal promised lands. And these two parts... Red, Red Sea and Jordan River are connected. They're united. 
The first baptism is meaningless if we fall in the wilderness. And many, many, many churchgoers will fall and not cross the Jordan. Let us not fall in the wilderness. Let us not refuse to be humbled. Let us discover that our faith, when tested, is genuine. Let us never forget the glory of the eternal promised land. God has promised it, and it will be ours. Praise be to God and God alone that by grace through faith, baptism not only marks our union with Israel because Israel failed, but Jesus came to walk the same walk that Israel walked, and whereas they failed, he succeeded. He fulfilled all righteousness. We are hid in him. We will cross the Jordan River if we are in him. His righteousness in the wilderness becomes our own. He was baptized on the cross, receiving the judgment, which is the Jordan River part of baptism, on our behalf, and he will bring us safely to the other side. All we have to do is ask him, and it is his joy to take us. Let's pray. Oh, God, there's a lot of information, but it's so glorious to think about how we in Christ fulfill the history of Israel from slavery to promised land and the two parts of baptism and the wilderness wandering, all of it captured and and giving meaning to Christian baptism. We want to be found in Christ. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Let us be in Him through the Red Sea and the Jordan River so that we can come into the eternal glory of your new heavens and new earth and there reign with Christ forever and ever. Not because we're righteous, but because He is. In His name we pray. Amen. Waters, He will carry us safely to shore. Uh, Just so, what a glorious truth, right? That we are in Christ. He has fulfilled all righteousness. And so really... We take the Red Sea and the Jordan River, we put them together, we're delivered from sin, we will come into the eternal promised land if we are in Christ. And now, between the two parts, life is hard. Every one of us has got our own suffering to do. I want to leave you with the hope of the promised land. John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I don't know if he's referring to the Red Sea and Jordan River. There's a lot of commentators that say he's talking about chaos, but interesting, isn't it? You come through, baptism's behind you. The sea is no more. I'm going to take that liberty. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's heaven, coming down out of the sky from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Persevere. 
Jesus will return. He will take us across the Jordan. These words are trustworthy and true. God bless you. Go with peace.